What's up, filmmakers and moviegoers? This is Zach. And this is Eric. Man, if you guys are just checking us out for the first time, thank you. Um, make sure you go back to last week's episode with Rob Rusher, though. Uh, it was awesome. We were at Cine Gear 2019, and we got to talk to him on the Paramount Backlot. Some really great things to say. How did you feel about that interview? Oh, it was, ama- it was amazing deep dive into gear. It really yeah, was. Yeah, there was a lot of it. Yeah. Uh, we stumped him on, on one question towards the end, which was fun. But uh, go back and check out last week's episode, guys. It's a, it's a great one. So uh, this week, we are talking to an editor, though. We yep. are on the post-production side of things. And uh, this guy, he is pretty new to the game. I mean, really, just, uh, what, two years out of film school, I think he yep. says. And uh, we talked to him over Skype. He was in London at the time working on some on some projects. And uh, Eric, how did we how did we meet Vaughn? So, yeah, we originally connected on Twitter. There was a mutual friend of ours that had posted that he was going to be at the MCU Infinity War Q&A with the Russo brothers at the Arclight in Hollywood, which was a huge anticipation for the release of the trailer for Endgame, which it hadn't been yet. And though that actually didn't happen, he, Vaughn, tweeted live at, from the event, and it was really cool. And we both share, you know, the passion of MCU and and that type of thing. And um, and he's really passionate about the IMAX format. He so, is, yeah. yeah. We had some great discussions with him about the IMAX format. Um, man, he's, he's so passionate about it. Like, that might even be an understatement. Um, and he just had... You know, for for how you know, I guess young in the industry he is, there was a lot of golden nuggets in this thing. It was, and yeah, it was um, really if cool. you if you love the MCU and you love IMAX, you're going to love this interview. So here's our interview with Vaughn. What's up, guys? So we are here with Vaughn. He's on Twitter as I am a film editor, and uh, Vaughn, man, how are you doing? I'm doing good, guys. Uh, thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, of course. We we came across you, uh, Eric. You you came across Vaughn uh, during the the Infinity War screen with the Russos, right? Yes. Yeah. Cosmic Wonder had posted. Everybody was trying to get tickets to that screening because we're we're eagerly waiting for the the End Game trailer, which didn't actually happen. Um, but the the Russos hosted, and they had a little bit of a Q and A panel, and um, Cosmic Wonder was like, hey, Vaughn's going to be there tweeting live from the event. And I'm like, oh, sweet. So that's how we originally connected on Twitter. And uh, we've been Twitter friends ever since. Yeah. So yeah, it's, Vaughn, yeah, how, it's did you, how did you get into that, the, the screening? Oh, uh, well, I'm actually friends with the guys at Collider. And okay. uh, I've been known, uh, I knew Steven Weintraub, Frosty from Collider for a while. So he and I have been digging around for some stuff, and uh, I go to a lot of his screenings. You know, he's been really kind to me and sending. He had notified me like, hey, man, we're going to be doing this. Just don't tell anybody yet. But we got an invite from the Russos going like, hey, we can do this Infinity War screening. Do you want to come? So Frosty's been really cool, you know, sending me emails first when he's been hearing about all this stuff. And he's been really kind to everybody that reads his website Collider and sending him all the invites. So I'm just really lucky to know him and get into the scoops that he gets to. It's, it's really nice. Yeah, for sure. Collider's awesome. I mean, it's one of the, the three, I think the three big sites that I go to, at least for, you know, film, film news besides uh, Deadline and then uh, Slash Film a little bit. But um, yeah, it's crazy. I, I've been reading them since middle school. I remember when yeah. they were just a website and now they have a YouTube channel with all the guys from YouTube that I watch. So yeah. it's pretty great. Yeah, and then I met these Jeff big set visits and stuff too. Yeah, Col- of Collider over at uh, NAB. Oh, he was at NAB. That's yeah. right. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's cool. Well, Vaughn, man, yeah. um, how did you how did you get started in industry, and uh, what kind of led you to become an editor? Well, it's crazy, man, because I've loved movies since I was a kid, you know, like yeah. some kids, you know, go to people's houses like family visits. Right. Uh, and, you know, and sometimes as a kid, you'd be bored. But as a young age, I discovered in my uncle's closet, he had like a giant stack of movies, like huge, like you've never seen a collection like this. So I was like, wow, now that every time that we come over here, I'll be able to pull out like two, three movies a night and enjoy them in a separate TV room while the adults are talking about their stuff. So I I just loved watching movies. And, you know, as a kid, you never think that this would be a profession. You're just like, wow, it's it's incredible to witness this stuff before you even 
you know, before you even know how they're made. Yeah. And then, then, and then you to, find out you can, oh, I can make money from this. And you're yeah, like, oh, for sure. wow. Yeah, for sure. And then cut to me being five years old. And uh, my first movie going experience, which will tie later into the conversation uh, on the other subject, which is my first movie going experience was at a real 70 millimeter IMAX film theater that I consult at to this day. The oh, exact man. same auditorium has not changed at uh, four and a half, five years old. I can't remember exactly when it was. I saw Fantasia 2000 on an IMAX. Oh, screen. wow. Oh, wow. So, so if you guys remember that movie, it, you know, it, it's so massive in its scale because yeah. of mm-hmm. the Disney animation. And remember, there's no dialogue. So it's just score. It's right. just orchestral yeah. music. So just, so imagine sitting in the middle of that giant IMAX theater. And we're talking about before LIMAX theater existed. Right. So yes. it's like real eight story tall screen projected on film. And this was way before Christopher Nolan had shot the dark Knight, being the first Hollywood feature to be shot in IMAX film uh, on this format. But because it was animation, they were able to fill the cells to the complete 70 millimeter frame. Yeah. yeah wow. So I, re- I remember distinctly sitting in that theater and I remember the whole movie cause I own it and I've revisited it from time to time, but there at the very last sequence, like the very last number in the movie, there's this sequence called the firebird suite. Yep. And it's that moment where it's the story of the Sprite and she's trying to, uh, you know, polish life on this, you know, landmass with a volcano and nature and all this and she ends up going up into a volcano and touches it and this big these two big eyes open and the the volcano manifests into a giant firebird as as the suite is called so imagine just being terrified as a kid oh yeah watching <laughs> that <laughs> sequence seven stories tall eight, <laughs> yeah. eight stories yeah. tall right right with, eight, with yeah. these with these blaring horns that, again, <laughs> there, there, there's no dialogue, so it's all score. And because the IMAX surround sound system is so powerful, that left an imprint on me, man. Like, I cannot forget that moment. Sure, so, man, yeah. I love that. And I did not know what IMAX was back in the day because I was too young. I did not know what it was, but the size always stuck with me. And I, sure. and I remember going to movies afterwards and loving going to the cinema. That was my favorite thing to do. Just go to the movies. But you know what? I had never forgotten that that movie that I saw, Fantasia 2000, would never compare, you know, with the standard projection that I saw. And there was nothing wrong with standard projection. It's just the standard projection can never compare to right. a screen that size with the yeah, presentation. Yeah, the scale is just... Yeah. Did so they, cut to middle school. Yeah. Well, so, hang, sorry, hang on. Let me, let me, yeah. Let me jump in there. Did they ever release that version, the 70 millimeter like aspect ratio for that movie? Well, they did not, but if you watch the actual feature on the DVD and now Blu-ray, it fills up the screen. So it, oh, okay. it, it would be, so it still would be 65 mil cropped right. uh, fit for your television, but they retained that aspect ratio. However, if any of you guys owned the VHS version and it was the pan and scanned uh, full screen version, then it would include the 70 millimeter because wow. it's a square and not a rectangle. Right, right. So you yeah, would I actually think, be. Huh. T- I think actually my I have a box in the garage that has a bunch of my mom's old uh, VHS tapes. Yeah, and I think she has that in. There. Oh man, yeah. that would be that would be so oh, crazy to go see. Yeah. Yeah, and boy, like I remember, and it it, it, it was there, at, and the place that I still consult at. So, cut to middle school, right? Uh, I'm in my history class in the computer lab. My teacher uh, asks, "Hey guys, uh, we're going to do a history project, but I want you to make a five minute video on the topic of your choice from the book that we've been reading." And I was like, "Wow, man! Like this is really cool. I get to make my own little movie." And at this point. Cut from the moment I saw that Fantasia 2000 in the theater to now, I was screwing around with iMovie at home by myself. Sure. And, yeah. you, you know, learning about effects and just, you know, at this point, I didn't even know how to put motion into it. I just put still images with m- music in the background. But in my mind, I can imagine what I wanted to see. So the gears were starting to sort of turn in what I kind of use today. So cut to middle school in that class. It was probably for that age a really great little project that I did. And I was so proud of it. You know, I, and I, I wish I could find it. I wish I knew. Yeah. I'm, I'm like, it, yeah. it needs to be posted to YouTube 
No, <laughs> we need to see that. There, I, I mean, I don't. I don't have one of those. I, a lot of my earlier projects, I'm like, please, no one ever see this ever. No, 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 no. <laughs> I, I probably feel the same way, but I think I don't. I cannot express enough how proud I felt knowing sure. that it might not be the greatest thing, but wow, like I actually did something that yeah, I you thought made I it. could yeah. do. You created it. Yeah, which totally, is cool. totally. I created it. Yeah. So. Yeah. Here is where it gets the most interesting, right? So it's middle school, 2008 rolls around, The Dark Knight is about to open. And it's one of my most anticipated movies of that year. I learned that I don't, again, at this point, I know what IMAX is, but I don't know what the technology is. I'm still too young to really understand it. I remember that movie comes out. I go to the theater that I saw Fantasia 2000 at. I sit in that theater and I watch Dark Knight for the first time. And... Again, for those that don't know, Dark Knight was the first Hollywood live action feature to feature IMAX sequences with IMAX 70 millimeter film cameras. So Nolan revolutionized that. So imagine now I'm in middle school sitting there watching Batman, Joker, Duke it out in this format. I'm like, wow, I remember this screen, but I don't remember how big it was. Because, you know, when you're young, you, you sort of forget yeah. it, you know? Yeah, you, you everything's sort of, big when you're tiny, too. Right, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but but what's fantastic about it is even though I got older, the screen never shrunk in my in my eyes. It still remained that big and encompassing. And after watching Dark Knight, I really became fascinated with IMAX was. And at this point, I didn't know the difference between digital and celluloid film. But all I knew in the back of my head is, wow, I wish I could go see movies on this scale everywhere. Sure. And I when I realized that cameras actually shoot both digital and film i started to study film the actual celluloid and i realized that's how dark knight was shot and i just like wow if i can just have a piece of that film like if i could just have a memorabilia piece i'll forever like treasure that you know what i mean because it was such a life-changing moment for me cut to and we'll we'll get this uh on the next segment but cut to let's say i i'm in college at this point I make friends with some of the managers at that exact same theater. I was like, hey, man, I, re- I would really like to see the projection room because, you know, I've seen it as a kid, but I've never seen an IMAX projection room before. And I was really lucky because he goes, you know, when it's busy, we can't really do that. But it was a Tuesday afternoon. Oh, perfect. It was yeah. really it was really empty. He's like, all right, I'll take you up. So he takes me up and there's no one in the audience really. I don't even think a movie was on or anything. So he, he shows me the projection room and I'm like, wow, they actually have film sitting there. He's like, well, some of that is, uh, uh, unusable. You want to take some? Oh, what? And, uh, uh, yeah, because here, here's what we'll get into it, uh, which is people don't realize that some of that film that sits up there and boy, does it kind of really break my heart. So some of that film sits up there for decades. Yeah. And I mean decades. I mean, we're talking about I I actually found a piece of Treasure Planet that was up oh, there. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. It's crazy. Like that. Yeah. That, that's been up there since. Again, it's not the whole thing, but you, it, it it's a it's a segment of it. But you can start to understand that. Wow. Like they actually have a whole history of movies that pass through here. Yeah. And don't even get the spread of light. So he goes. If you want to look on that rack, start pulling some film. They're all blanks, man. I've looked through it. There isn't <laughs> a lot of stuff. I'm pulling through it. And at least for a half hour, it's just blank. Then I get to the segment where it says rated PG-13. and has the blue background on it. And we all know when it's blue and not green, that it means it's some sort of prologue or some sort of feature because the green encompasses trailers and previews. Right, right. So I'm pulling it back. And what do I find, guys? I find the bank robbery sequence from Dark Knight. Oh, my and, gosh. And, <laughs> That's and awesome. It's, it's crazy because that was even in the original camera negative because when I looked at it and it was just the prologue with the uh, with the montage in the end, I realized, wow, this has been sitting since I Am Legend came out. Because right, because it was attached that, to that, right? That's right. Yeah. So, Man, that's how I got my first IMAX film at home because oh, they're like, well, it's been sitting up here for decades. The studio hasn't asked for it back. And let me clarify to all the audience right now that if a studio asks for it back, I'm not allowed to take it. If a studio right. says sure. we need the print back, they have to give it back. They know their priorities. But they did say if we check in with the studio and if we know this stuff has been up there for decades and we can get the concrete detail that, yeah, we don't need it back, it's yours. And some managers 
didn't like that because they wanted to keep some for themselves. Yeah. And some other guys were like, man, you're really passionate about this. Like, we feel that, you know, you don't like this stuff to just sit and rot up here and dust away. And that's exactly how I felt. I was like, a lot of these managers give, I will give credit to those that helped me, of course, but majority of the managers, you know, they didn't care because that wasn't their job. But at the same time, it was just sitting there. And I was like, well, how come, even if it's just in pieces and increments, how about I take them home, put them in the canisters, just put them in my closet and just have them there in yeah, case as a somebody collector, wants to, yeah. as a collector, but it wasn't, it wasn't just for me to collect them. And this goes back to how it became part of the industry. It motivated me to eventually make an IMAX movie. And that's still a goal of mine is to eventually get up to the point, to the status of where I would be able to cut an IMAX film and looking at all those prints. It just motivates me. And some sure. people have art. Some some people have paintings. Some people have music. That's my way in. You know, that's yeah, what made that's me super, go, that's I want to do it. That's super cool that that uh, that those the, the managers that you did connect with was it was uh, was it, he was OK he, with yeah, it. Yeah. He, yeah. And he was <laughs> because, I mean, it, it's funny that we're talking about this because just recently I was trying to get this massive avengers uh pop-up sign that they put in the in the uh lobby right yeah and so i was over at uh, the amc and there's one amc left that still had one and it was because their their um their paper shredder their cardboard shredder was was broken and they were waiting and so i mean because we're four weeks into that release and i and and i I said, I asked a couple of the managers and are like, well, you'd have to talk to the GM or one of the managers said you had to call the company that makes those, which is like this advertisement company that does it for the studios. And so I, I, I call, I got the number off of the back of the sign. I called the company, which was a subsidiary of another company that ended up having a rep having to call me back. And then said, and they said, Hey, it's up to the discretion of the theater managers. So I asked the theater manager, I said, Hey, can I get this? Can I get this sign? And he's like, well, um, no, we just destroy him. I'm like, okay, so you're just going to throw it away. <laughs> I'm a, I'm an Uber nerd fan and I would love to have this thing in my garage or my house or whatever in my office. And he was like, he was like, no, it, I don't want to risk my job if it gets sold. I'm like, I am not selling. Oh it. my gosh. Yeah. And, <laughs> you know, and so, like you said, you know, with giving you those prints in those in those uh, in those films, it's like the studio might not want it back. But then it's like, why would your job be at risk if they don't care about having it back? And it's just going to sit and collect dust or get thrown away or destroyed. Um, why not have somebody that really cares about it or that inspires them or, you know, that is a collector or whatever. Yeah. That's going to do something productive with it. It doesn't make sense. Yeah. And I think the bigger part of it too, is you're not just collecting it. Like you're preserving it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And it's crazy. And I love that story you just told about the, the standee because that ties in with the next part of the story, which is, I had one of the employees that worked there. He was not a manager, but he was one of the floor staff employees. And he had quit that day and he texts me, swear, this is a true story. He (laughs) texts me going, I'm coming over right now. I was like, how come? I was just by the dumpster and I found 20 minutes of uncut man of steel. Oh my gosh. (laughs) And, and I go, man, bring that shit over. And he brings it over (laughs) and he brings it over. And this is where you know that they don't care because it wasn't even preserved in a orderly fashion in the canisters. It was just dumped in a cardboard box, oh. all crunched up. So it took me two weeks to undo everything in the box. And I had to unfortunately cut a bit of it because, you know, yeah. you don't want it to get it ripped or anything. Sure. But I managed to take two empty cases from the theater, bring them home. And for two weeks, I was winding this stuff up. And now it's in an orderly fashion. In the canisters, it took two canisters to do that. I message through my friend Zack Snyder on his uh, app Vero, and he goes, you know what? Take care of that because I don't even have one of those. Wow. wow. So, so you know, to get him to say that, to say, like, you have to take care of that even though it's just partial, means yeah. a lot, man. Like, that, sure. that's what it is. And, and the basic answer to your question, 
I got into the industry because I just love it. I've never done it for profit, even though it is a perk. Let's not kid ourselves. It, it, it's a perk. Oh, yeah. But I make profit doing what I actually care about. Probably the only thing I majorly care about in this life. And, you know, and to get all the support from the people I've met and the, all these prints, it's just a great feeling, man. And there are highs and lows. There, Of course, there are struggles, and I'm sure we'll get into them. But at the end of the day, when you have prints like that that mean a lot, that can motivate you, even on your lowest of your lows, I think it makes a big difference. For sure. Uh, I, you know, I'm curious, like, you, you have quite the, uh, uh, I guess, uploads uh, to your Twitter here from, from different things uh the big one being a lot of the infinity war imax aspect ratio uh yeah. uploads how do you like are you scanning in like that man of steel or are you just keeping those those film reels uh just in a can uh, sometimes i scan them uh, because it takes a long time obviously yeah and every it, it, there's 24 frames a second so imagine going through the entire stuff um but Sometimes I do scan them, and I scan them more for visual aesthetic because I realized, hey, man, if I scan them and put HD versions on my computer, I can look at that on my computer rather than opening it up and put my fingerprints on it sure. and all that. It re and it really saves it, and I think it really helps with the catalog because I can know which parts of the movie are which. I can time code it. I can put that in there. But what I did scan, which was uh, pretty amazing, was the Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol uh, Burj Khalifa sequence. Oh, and wow. That was one of the ones that I found that was really lucky. It was the full scene uncut. It was literally from the moment he steps out of the building to the moment he comes back in. And I'm so grateful for all the help that I've gotten from those guys in obtaining it because Cineworld has just bought Regal. And okay. it was a Regal Theater. Yeah. So they're just trying to really uh, revamp everything, right? So I get a message from one of my guys that still works there. He goes, man, you were so lucky you got what you got because everything's thrown away now. It's completely empty. Oh, man. So because they're even uh, trying to get rid of the 70 millimeter film projector. And if you guys remember, I actually put up a petition trying to save it. Right. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, and I got and I actually out of all people got Frank Marshall to retweet it. So I think that really helped. Them. Wow. Yeah, that's really it was cool. Pretty great. So, yeah. So I scanned that sequence. And of course, it has to be cropped a little bit, adjusting for the TV and all that good stuff. But it, at the end of the day, even when you scan it into a computer, you can tell the difference between a 35 millimeter resolution versus oh, yeah. 70 millimeter IMAX, because here's. For the audience that doesn't really understand how the resolution works, let's say, let, let's say we're watching that scene of Tom Cruise climbing the building, right? He puts his palm on the window. Well, uh, you know, statistically proven that if you shoot that in 35, you won't be able to see the vibration of the window when he hits his glove against it. But on IMAX, because the resolution is so high, you can actually see the reverb of him actually hitting that uh, window. And you can see all the little cars and the reflections yeah. of the window. So and I love the way Brad Bird shot that because it's very aesthetic, right? They're, like when you play it in an IMAX theater, and I've done so, and I, and I really feel like I want to screen that sequence just for people that are not as educated about IMAX to show them how it really feels. Sure. Because I remember when that movie came out. People reported having vertigo because they felt like they were going to tumble into the screen. Oh, yeah. <laughs> because, the yeah. because the IMAX seats are designed so you sit forward. So yeah, right. when he's climbing that building and you have that over-the-head shot, you can't help but to feel like you're going to fall in. And it's just amazing to me how real and three-dimensional a flat 2D IMAX 70-millimeter shot looks compared to the 3D we have today. Oh, I totally it's just agree. Incredible. Yeah, and I was yeah. lucky enough to actually see Ghost Protocol in a, a real IMAX, and yeah, you're, you're totally on the money with that. Like, it was such an experience. And it's the, the, the yeah, first the shot looking down the tower, and it's just like, like you, you almost yeah, you do get a little sick to it. Yeah, it's it's yeah, it's great. crazy. Brad Bird, Brad Bird uh, sees the tweet that I put up about the uh, the print that I got. He's like, "Wow, I don't have, I don't, I don't even have a print of it." Well, yeah. I, you know, I would love to, I would love to screen it, and unless you have, uh, but you need an IMAX leader to do that. Right. And, and, you know, I was like, mm, I actually do have one yeah. that I consult at, and so. I've been starting this Twitter trend to get people to see if people are interested in screening that just that sequence. And I'm seeing if I can get enough people interested. Maybe we can contact Paramount 
and oh, get man. Brad Bird to come and possibly do a Q and A. Yeah. Obviously, I haven't had a conversation with him yet about it. it hasn't reached that big. But like the Fuse podcast, which is the their uh, Mission Impossible podcast, found out about it, and they're like, guys, we bro, we've been trying to get paramount to do a screening of this for years yeah and i was like well let's collaborate let's see if we can get brad bird to be interested so i'm working on that but you know it's got people's attention so it's now time to take the next step and see what happens but honestly to me it's just to see how visually stunning it looks you know sure i think a huge part of i mean it feels like kind of a, a, a renaissance of uh, aspect ratios, I guess, um, of being like the next kind of thing that people are paying attention to in a lot of ways. Cause we had 3d for a little while after avatar and I, I never got into it. I'm not a big fan of it at all. Um, but now it's kind of like, you know, how do we get more people into the theater and people are realizing it's like, well, it's better sound and better picture. And along with that better picture comes bigger picture. And, you know, IMAX has what you, you uh, affectionately refer to as LIMAX. That's the same thing I call it too, is, is really pushing people more towards that. I feel like, I mean, we have a theater here in Phoenix, um, that there's a chain, a local chain here called, uh, Harkins. And they have, um, these, these giant theaters that are called, uh, cine ones. And they're not the seven story tall or eight story tall ones, but they're 81 feet wide, um, for 235. And it, it's just an incredible experience to watch film in that size. And yeah, I, it's I fully immersive. Yeah, yeah. I think that is the future is, you know, these bigger aspect ratios and nothing like nothing says that more to me than when I watched like Dunkirk in an IMAX and yeah, I was just totally immersed. any Nolan movie. You know? Right. Yeah. And it's crazy because I feel like we're getting there, but you know, I made this tweet a while ago. I don't know if you guys saw it. I said, and I very, you know, bluntly put it out that I didn't want to come across as, you know, self-centered or arrogant. But I said, man, like, I really feel like for, I, I'm 24 right now. So I feel like for my age, there are a lot of people who are passionate about it, but I feel like there's not a lot of people that will do anything about it because a, they might not have the resources to do so. They might be nervous. They, they might not know how to go about it. Sure. And I feel like I'm really trying to push it. And I feel like if we can get more people in, you know, the millennials to start understanding and to get little kids to go to movies like this. And it has the effect on me, the way I saw Fantasia 2000 and Dark Knight, they will start to word of mouth push this because I do agree that Limax is starting to push IMAX, but at the same time, I cannot, I've never ever supported that because they charge you the same $20 ticket and they, and they, and for the, you know, for people who are not filmmakers like us and just the average moviegoer, they're just going to think that's real IMAX. But the truth of the matter is it isn't. So how do we get people to recognize this? And that's why I'm so adamant to have Q and A's with Brad Bird and any other filmmaker that has knowledge that have prints like this, even if they're just partial, even if they're just scenes by themselves. I feel like like certain scenes by themselves can make an impact, just like the Burj Khalifa sequence. Oh, totally. So if we can get, if I can push enough people to be interested and hopefully get the studio's attention to be like, you know what, Let, let's, let's try this out, see what happens. And if we get, like when Dark Knight Rises was coming out, they did a prologue screening at uh, Universal City Walk and Chris Nolan showed up and he talked about the prologue and how and why they wanted to film it this way. I feel like if we can do that with even retrospective films that have already come out mm-hmm. and present them, people will be like, not only do I want to see a re-release of this, I want to see more movies shot that way. For sure. So yeah. I, I think we should I think we need to get into people's consciousness. And I think that's why I enjoy posting side by side shots of 35 millimeter and my IMAX prints on Twitter because it gives people the opportunity that may not have that opportunity to see behind the scenes of just how big, because you can tell somebody it's bigger. Why is it bigger and how is it bigger? Show them the fil- uh, the frame size. Yeah. If 35 millimeters this big and 70 millimeters that big, you can tell by the scan just by how big and the difference of the quality is. And people will get attention to that and go, well, you know what? I might take this word of mouth because I see it firsthand and it's not even projected. It's just a scan. But if it looks that good this way, I can imagine how good it's going to look projected. And, you know, people have to I think I think people have to give the cinema the more chance because I feel like fandom has gotten so toxic that 
we as filmmakers and moviegoers have sort of lost sight of what makes movies really important. Sure, yeah. you have an, you have to have a great story to hook you in for sure. But I think if people start stop paying attention to the art and the making of them, and look, the general audience doesn't have to be. But I feel like even aspiring filmmakers today that I've met through my college and stuff don't really care about the art so much. And I've seen a lot of people starting to diss that. I'm like, well, that's what movies were founded upon. It was mm -hmm. a new kind of art that yeah. hadn't yeah. been done before. And so if you can sort of get the magic, the magic trick into people's heads again, why not? I think we can do it. I just think we need the support from a lot of people who might not have the exposure to what these large formats are. And if we can expose them to it, we, can, might, we might be able to make a big difference in the cinema-going experience because I love my iPad. I love my giant TV. I love Blu-ray. I love my 4K. Watching movies in the home has never been better. It's been it's fantastic, and I really embrace how home media has embraced the theatrical experience, but we also don't want to lose the idea of going to the movies. I appreciate just your passion for that, too, and I think what's, what helps us to to get that and restore that experience for people is doing what we're doing right now. We're having the conversation. You're, you're very active on, on social media about educating people and helping, helping them understand what the difference is and, and why it's important. Um, and not, not just for the filmmakers on why it's important and the craft of it, behind it but also for for the general audience and moviegoers of just the full immersion and quality of the experience so for sure yeah so i i just so i say it i appreciate your passion and i appreciate just taking this opportunity to further this conversation so that so that more people can can be aware yeah i mean it's it's such a it's such an interesting topic uh, for filmmakers in general, you know, aspect ratios, you know, you're shooting in 235, you're going to shoot anamorphic, you're going to shoot spherical, you know, and it's, it's crazy that, you know, like the average moviegoer just doesn't really care, um, you know, in a lot of ways. When you, when you go to these big movies though, these tentpole movies, um, the MCU movies, the Dunkirks, the, you know, the Nolans, uh, like you, you expect that now you expect these big movies to kind of have a certain bigness, to them, do you think that there's anything to that that the you know that you expect in game or Infinity War to have kind of a different vibe, or do you? I mean, what do you think of smaller movies possibly shooting on IMAX um, in the same way? Well, uh, I'm very passionate about that because I feel like IMAX. The, the, to clarify for your audience, the reason why IMAX is so difficult to shoot with is because it's very expensive. It is right. very, very expensive. Yeah. And that's not just the digital cameras. We're talking about the film cameras. The mags run only two minutes. You right. have to reload. They're very noisy cameras. Uh, incredibly so loud, you really yeah. Have, you, you really have to know your stuff. And I, and I, really, I really think that IMAX has taken a great measure to... Again, I'm not affiliated with the company, but I know people that work there. I know their marketing department. We've sort of talked about this, about how how it's really important to make people understand that IMAX is not trying to limit the people that use their equipment. I think they just want people that are very, very educated in the, the shooting on film and their format because if I was that company, I wouldn't want somebody to go out and experiment on set. Sure. I want somebody to go there and know what they're doing and bring them and bring my cameras back. Right. But I feel like what we can do is if IMAX was ever in the position to possibly open a workshop for people, they have an internship program. They have a great internship program that I'm trying to get into at some point, you know, but I think if they, you know, start to educate people about behind the scenes because if you look on YouTube and you type in IMAX 70 millimeter, some of the video videos that come up actually are science museums where when you're done with your screening, you could actually walk across the lobby, but they have, instead of a solid wall, they have a glass wall where you can see the projector spinning and the projections oh, wow. working on the, on, the, on the actual prints. So I feel like if more IMAX theaters had that opportunity for people to see what it looks like, and maybe it will get people interested and be like, wow, that like... That's actual work. Like, people put a lot of work into this. I don't yeah. think people understand. I mean, let alone standard 35 millimeter and 70 millimeter 
uh, projectionist staff to deal with the standard footage, the standard formats. Like, I don't think people really know how long it takes to stitch together, let's say, a 40 real print. I mean, yeah, it's I, I mean, it's not just walking time. in and pushing a button to hit play. <laughs> no, you have to assemble that print yeah. before it's ready. And you have to make sure it's not reversed. You have to make sure right. you cut the right strip at the right time. The time code is all correct. And yeah. people don't a lot of people don't know that the temperature in the projection room is really important because if there's humidity in there, oh, the, yeah. the print will, you know, the, the print will start to fall apart. So yeah. I think if we can educate people and put more conversations like this out there, I think it's really important. And a lot of the, uh, a lot of the connections I've made in the industry support that too. So I am very happy that not only am I getting a following for this kind of format, the people that work in this format appreciate that as well and you know sometimes like i did a conversation so on my youtube channel the filmmaking and fandom station uh me and my friend mike fallon from uh, citizen cinema did a two almost two hour conversation with uh writer director stephen tonight for uh pacific rim uprising it was the only the only spoiler special he had ever done and we sat in the alley studios huh. in los angeles and we actually had a really in-depth conversation about the movie, but we also talked about the formats and I brought up IMAX and he's like, I wish that I could have shot this movie in IMAX. I hope to shoot my future movies that way. So I'm not alone. I, I, I like, oh, for I'm sure. still an independent yeah. freelance filmmaker. There's a lot of big name filmmakers out there that still haven't used the format, but desire to in the correct way, because I've talked to some people and heard people talk about how we want to shoot in large format and we see a lot of people do not really doing it the correct way or necessarily the most immersive way. And mm -hmm. we think we can do better. So when people in the industry that are much bigger than I am start talking about it, I think that makes a real difference. Yeah, I think it's going to get stuff moving. But, you know, you yeah. brought up you brought up a really good point, you know, the large format. Um, you know, I'd love, love to get kind of your, your, your reaction or feedback from these, like the Airy, um, the Alexa 65 and the Airy LF cameras that are out there now. And even the, uh, like the red Monstro, which is the Vista vision. Uh, I mean, yeah. I know they don't really compare to like an actual 70 millimeter IMAX, but I mean, are you, do you think that's going in the right direction there by bringing that digital into the, that size? I, I think digital is great. And I think I mean, here's how I see it. People ask me, like, when you edit, do you like to edit digitally or film? Which one do you prefer? And I said, of course, digitally, because it makes my workload a lot less oh, yeah. rather than to splice yeah. and put everything. If it's all done in the computer, I could just arrange it. I can create a narrative so much more, not so much easier, but a lot quicker. And a lot yeah, it's faster. more efficient, and more cost effective. Yeah, it, it is. And I think uh, what's amazing is is I actually support digital IMAX. Believe it or not, I actually support that format when it's used in the right context and the right cinema experience. So we're talking about Aerie 65 millimeter. They partnered with IMAX to shoot the airport sequence in Civil War and now in Avengers Infinity War and Avengers Endgame yeah. was shot completely with the Aerie 65 millimeter digital IMAX camera. And I think it's fantastic. The film school that I came from, Saddleback College, the first camera we learned was on the red they yeah. immediately went to red film 101 was with dslr cameras because of course you're a beginner and they want you to do that yeah. but once you get to the advanced film one two and three class they really make sure you jump on red because that's the industry standard and i'm more of a post guy so obviously as an editor i stay more in a secluded area doing my work sure and set work has never really been for me but i appreciate what those guys do because without their enormous contribution, I don't have the brilliant looking footage to cut together. So in order to teach people that want to get into camera and want to get to be a DP and work on set, to have quicker access to the industry standard technology, I think it's fantastic. And I think the formats are getting better and better. And here's the difference uh, with your question that I think a lot of people need to understand it's not so much of it's is it going in the right direction because i feel like high definition cameras high definition sound systems editing systems televisions they're always going to get better we're talking about 8k tvs coming out next yeah, year it's right, ridiculous. Right. so yeah. it's not so much is it going to get better 
it's going to get incredibly better. The question is really, is it going to be used, uh, used correctly and used efficiently? Because what's the best way I can put it? Like, you can make a movie with the biggest special effects galore, the best cameras, the best software, everything. You can make the movie look really, really great. But if the heart of your story isn't there, and if, like, no one's going to care because you're not invested in character and you're totally. not invested in in what you're trying to, uh, to convey to the audience. So I feel like with technology, technology should not be a toy. Technology should be used to tell your story. So the cameras and everything are always going to get better. How are we going to use them to tell stories better? How are we going to use this technology to get into places we haven't been before? I mean, not only are cameras getting a lot uh, more high definition, they're getting a lot smaller. Yeah. I mean, oh, yeah. we're, we're getting to the point where cameras are GoPro size and look like full on camera shots. It's crazy. Yeah. I mean, they're yeah. good, they've been able to go underwater and go through crevices and caves that we would never have been able to do about five years ago. We're, like the question is, so again, the question is not so much, is it going to get better? How are we going to use the better technology to better tell stories? And I think that's the way you do it. You have to you have to use the technology to tell a good story. And I think if film schools and people that actually want to be in this industry and make movies have to think of your story first. And if you have a great story, get the best technology that's available to you to help tell that story. Don't just obtain the technology because. Yeah, you know, I appreciate you you, you, you bringing it back to story, right? And it's that that's what the fundamental foundation of what the decisions should be made on, you know, including a uh, large format with IMAX, like yeah, your, yeah. your film, like it's this film, you, you have to make that decision. And I first learned that from Shane Hurl, but when he was talking about, he did a, a master class about aspect ratios. And this is before I really knew anything about, you know, why you would choose a 235 over a 188 or, you know, and, and he kind of went into when, when you're shooting your film and you got your, your story, it's all storyboarded out and you're scripted and you know what, what, the story arc is going to look like and it's going to feel like what aspect ratio, what format best fits that and is best supports that. And it was, you know, to, to your point is that, that what, what the technology is, regardless of what we're talking about, you know, if it's from, from camera tech, film, digital, aspect ratio led LED, i mean yeah, every, right. you know every every detail should be measured against does it support that that story does it add to it or is it a distraction because you can do something that make a wrong decision in that in that in that in that uh in that vein and and it, and it kills what otherwise could be an amazing experience. Yeah. And I actually exactly. want to speak into that because you brought up a really good point of, you know, are we, are we going to send, you know, use this technology in the right way? And I think the perfect example is, you know, avatar coming out films in 3d, uh, and then the whole 3d wave happens. And then people are doing, you know, companies are doing 3d movies for the sake of the extra ticket price. And that exactly. wasn't that wasn't at all worth it for the story. I mean, I think like Thor one came out and Captain America one came out in three D, and it's like, what purpose was that? That didn't help serve the story. No, that you know, th and, those decisions are like people sitting suits sitting around a, a board table going, "How can we make more money out of this?" But Which, the difference also is is that those suits push post conversion 3d while Cameron yeah. shoots his 3d in camera and has a purpose for his 3d because he wants to immerse you in the world of Pandora right, right, and right. it works because he not only shoots it in 3d but with the computer he's able to augment the depth of field in right. post so he yeah. can decide in camera this didn't look good but if we stretch this a little bit then it will look better like he has 3d computers and he has his artists wearing 3D glasses, actually augmenting the depth of field and the digital characters. And that's why that movie was so successful in its technology, because sure. it was it, it was real. It, it felt real. That's that's if you can make it feel the most realistic, yeah. you know, and I think because suits and filmmakers have a totally different uh 
kind of mindset. And I, you know, as somebody who loves Hollywood and loves this industry for the creative art form, I totally agree that you have to do things out of instinct. Guillermo del Toro said something amazing, which I'd never heard a, a major filmmaker say, but he said he said it best. He said, for the filmmaker is about looking forwards, and for the suits it's looking backwards. Oh man! And I think, wow, and I good, think that's a good, good way to phrase it. Because because he was talking about how Hellboy two took a long time to make, and it was very successful on DVD. It yep. didn't do well so well in the theater, the first one, but it had enough traction where he knew that the audience would love it. And thankfully, because of the DVD release and the excessive home video purchasing. He was he was eventually going to convince the studio to make it, but had not had the DVDs not been in their limelight, I don't think we would have gotten the sequel. We're we're huge fans of the MCU. That's no mystery, and 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 a big part of that is that they've taken ten years to develop relationship and emotional equity with the audience, and I think that totally. that's true. Not not just with the film itself and the characters and the audience, but it's true behind the line as well. Um, which is why you know you you know you talk about that relationship and those instincts that you have, but you talked about even working that out with the director. You know the directors yeah. the directors giving giving some feedback and maybe asking you some questions. And then you're like, this, well, this is kind of how, I, you know, and it's that relationship that, that gets you through that and being able to work through that. Obviously the skills got to be there. You mentioned for sure. That's, that's a given, you know, putting that work in is, is, um, is there no question you have to have that. But I think that the harder, more tricky part is really just the relationship and in the synergy and the chemistry that's that's built in front of the line and behind the line, you know, pre-production and post in the whole process. And I think if if all of those pieces and all those cylinders are firing together, you you have you have a successful experience because the audience is going to feel that the story's going to it's going to come through in in you know that chemistry comes through it, it does and i think the and I, you brought up skill again and i think if for anybody that in the future asks me i think uh, you know you talking about that i was sort of thinking about it like in the future if somebody ever asked me and i just created the answer right now on on the show which is if if a future in the future if somebody comes to me and asks to you, what makes a great editor? What makes you a great editor? Uh, an editor? What can make me a great editor? If somebody were to ask me, I said, you could always have the skill. Anybody could lose, uh, learn the skill. You can know the program. But I think what makes a great editor, what makes a great filmmaker, what makes a great artist in any medium is gut instinct. You know, yeah. Uh, Beethoven, Van Gogh, every one of these artists that are looked upon were willing to not accept the status quo and do something that was different. And if you do something that's different, people will recognize that. And there's yeah. nothing wrong with taking ideas from other filmmakers. We see that happen all the time. Oh, I've yeah. been guilty of it. You guys have been guilty of it. Everybody's been yep. guilty of it. Yep. Everybody takes aspects, aspects that inspire them. And I think that's what it gets people into art. You're inspired by something you saw, something you heard, something you watched that got you into it. I cannot tell you how many times score is a big thing for me before and this is going to sound really cheese pizza but man like i actually like before i even know what knew what score was and before i knew i wanted to make movies the score was my favorite genre of music because i i recognized every time i went to the cinema as a kid and listening to music in a movie and then a melody or something catching my head i was like wow they actually release isolated score from the movie I just enjoyed on, on CD. And yeah, yeah. I, I would buy some and I would listen to them for hours on repeat because what, what fascinates me about it is this idea that score can take you on that journey of the movie emotionally. Music is there to help what the dialogue cannot, what the sound oh, for effects sure. cannot. Hey, Mr. And Fantasy, that's what, play me a tune so you can make us all happy. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. That, that's a, <laughs> Come on. 
that's that's it. But but that's another uh, segment that I want to go into is uh, editing with score because you know score being my favorite music of all time, and as I've made connections in the business, I've been lucky enough to acquire score that really hasn't been released to the public. Which means if you have let's let's say the Dark Knight score right comes out on CD, on iTunes, they come out with a special edition that's also two discs. That's the, the edition that came out right before the Blu-ray release. Right, right, yeah. And they had the entire score there, but it was mixed. Scenes were out of order. There were, there were moments that were cut. So talking about albums that I've obtained by certain individuals that I've come in contact with and trust is that I've been, I've been, I've been able to obtain recording sessions from past movies, I mean, this is years down uh, the line after they've been released, but to listen to the complete uncut Dark Knight score, which goes from three hours, and I mean three hours, and not only do you Jeez. get the full uncut movie score, you the third disc is all the suites for all the characters that Zimmer and Newton Howard created for so you have a nine minute joker suite you have a 16 minute batman theme you have a nine minute harvey dent theme wow like a lot of this the, the public doesn't get to see because right. a it's monetary and obviously they have to yeah. squeeze in a certain amount of time onto a cd and uh an itunes release and that's why even though i own all the star wars scores from williams my most prized possession is the, the uncut Star Wars Episode Three score because there's uh, Williams's scores from Spielberg to Lucas has always released partial film accurate tracks and more of John Williams concert suites of characters, hmm. and that's why when you, for example, listen to the Star Wars score uh, for A New Hope, you get main title Blockade Runner. Darth Vader's theme, Princess right. Leia's theme. You don't get the sequential film accurate time stamp tracks. But what I've been given the opportunity to listen to is how because it's film accurate and I'm able to listen I mean Lauren Balf, who I've also connected with on Twitter, just released his score isolated track for Mission Impossible Fallout on the Blu-ray. So you can listen to the entire Mission Impossible film score while watching the movie score only. Oh, that's so you cool, can yeah. watch the entire movie front to back with just his music. And just by the music you understand what's happening. Yeah. yeah. And and that goes back to my editing, which is a lot of people say, Don't cut to music. Never cut to music because your cuts will be different. And because if you cut to music, you have a certain way to do it. And then if your d director wants to cut a certain way, it'll become out of sync. And I understand that to a point. And you don't want to overdo it. But I've always cut with music in my head. And why do editors temp music? Because they want to know how they want the emotion to feel. And yeah, course, you have to set the vibe and kind yeah. of the tone for it, sure. The and, tone. Those, and those cuts should support the emotion that the music is also trying to support. Yeah. Like the, the rise of Skywalker's trailer. If you watch that trailer, you, that those cuts are cut to that, to that music. Yeah. And, and I, and actually I, I wouldn't be surprised if, um, Williams didn't do that score after the cut was already done. It's possible. I can confirm that he did. Okay, yeah, because it feels that it was like the swells right when those shots are. I mean, and it and the the trailer with that score yeah, is yeah. cut amazingly. I mean, uh, let's not forget. I mean, the first 88, 88 second teaser for Force Awakens was cut by Williams's actual music. He went in there and he actually scored that first trailer. Oh wow! But and that's another reason why I think it's very important to mention this to your audience is. Don't let people tell you not to cut with music. It's right. it's your pre it's a preference. If yeah. you don't feel like you should, don't do it. But yeah, for someone yeah. like me that does cut to music, do it because again it goes back to gut instinct. If right. the temp music that you're using to score the action or the uh, or a dramatic moment in a scene with characters, it, it it all comes down to how does it make you feel. If you as right. an editor don't are not emotionally invested, I don't care how many times you say you love what you do and but if it doesn't come across it doesn't come across to the audience you can love it but if your emotions don't come across 
then the audience isn't going to engage. And that's why I've been on projects, though editing, again, is what I love doing most in this world. There are projects that I've done where I could care less about what I'm cutting because the engagement isn't there. And sure, the story yeah. isn't there. And it has nothing to do with what you love doing. It has to do with the execution that your surrounding uh, cast and crew have given you. And that's why, well, I mean, let's, let's just bring back Zack Snyder again. That's why the Batman v Superman Ultimate Edition cut is the theatrical cut that should have been released because whether that movie is divisive and whether people hate it or people love it, both sides of the coin can agree that the ultimate addition is Snyder's love for these characters in his own way coming out. And you can feel that. You can feel that Snyder's imprint yeah. is all over that ultimate edition. It's, it's a that's totally why never, different movie. It, that's why I never call it the ultimate cut. That is the theatrical cut that Zack Snyder submitted to Warner Brothers that they rejected. And obviously I can't go into a lot of that stuff here but there's a lot a lot of stories and a lot of inside knowledge i know about that justice league production that will at some point i'm sure come out that again goes back to snyder had a vision they didn't like the vision they tore it up and yep, i yep. think when studios interfere too much yeah i mean a boy like i'll give the best example of all i think all right and i think your audience might be also divisive on this but uh, hear me out because I think it's rather interesting. I'm there's a YouTube channel called Midnight's Edge, and they do breakdowns of productions, some that worked really well and some that didn't work really well. And though it was kind of hilarious and there was some kind of behind the scenes drama and stuff, this Josh Trank Fantastic Four movie oh, yeah. is one of the, the biggest mysteries of Hollywood because yeah. we know Josh Trank is really talented, we know that he's a great screenwriter when he wants to be, and we know he has. The unique vision when i saw the first images of the fantastic four and the poster and the vibe that he was talking about not on not in the after release interviews but on the on-set interviews whether all that stuff about the drama went down or not you can tell that at some point josh strang had a really unique vision for fantastic four yep and and this is and i'm allowed to say this because i've said this on other shows i I knew some people that were involved with that production due to pre-production stuff like that. And, you know, it was a Fox property at the time. And, you know, I asked them, look, I don't want you to give me specifics if you can. If you can't if you're under NDA, it's understandable. But answer me this. Did, did the movie that Josh Trank put out to Fox, was that the one we got? And you got, you have no idea how much they went and scrapped that movie. Because yeah, I mean, and it's so there obvious, too. There were three too. action sequences that you've seen the trailer and even the teaser that were scrapped out. So right. whether the movie works in the audience in the end, as my point was before, is irrelevant. It's, it's, it's the artistic integrity that goes out there. You can never control if the audience loves a movie or not. And you should never control that. That's a lot of studios' mistakes to butt into audiences kind of reaction if they don't like it leave it at that move on make something else yeah right but if the audience could say a movie is bad and and this goes with again this goes with the michael bay transformers i love those movies because technology wise they're amazing they've used they've utilized ilm's uh computer graphics amazingly their imax photography is amazing true every person that i've talked to about the transformer series has agreed the movies are awful they're awful but why do they still back it up even a tiny bit because it revolutionized visual effects it revolutionized the camera angles it revolutionized the way you shoot action they can uh, rag on bay as a storyteller all they want but the universal audience accepts those movies were very cool to look at and if you have something that is even minute, even if you have something minor that's with gut instinct that you present to an audience, they're going to grab that gut instinct and they're not necessarily going to go, that was the greatest movie of all time, but they're going to go, you know, I see what they were trying to do. When you have people saying, I see what they were going for, it means that your artistic integrity came through. And I think that's very important. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I, yeah. I have, I have, you know, we're talking about, um, artistic integrity you're talking about a lot of audience reaction i have a burning question for you all right um, the burning question for me is you were able to go to the infinity war screening 
I was. And um, and be a part of that Q and A with the Russos. And yeah, um, I even got to talk to him afterwards, which was pretty right. Fantastic. Yeah, which was super cool. Okay, so I wasn't there. But I saw a lot of clips and heard a lot of of different things where anytime somebody asked about the the trailer for Endgame, yep. of course nobody knew it was called Endgame at that point, but and they, they would right. they would blow air horns. Yes, that's right. They were blowing air horns at, at, at anybody that were asking questions. And I think yeah. that might have been an, initially kind of funny. Right? Like the, it was cute, yes. but you were actually well, well, you we were there. Both, to me, we, so, so my we both know how much of the trolls the Russos are anyway. <laughs> yeah. So at first I thought, okay, maybe once or twice might have been cute and funny, but it it really it, it really bothered me because it was like, okay, now you after the first once or twice, it seemed like it was it was rude and disrespectful. Now tell me from your personal experience what your take was on that. And um, I, and how the audience responded to that. I think it was really interesting because, you know, my friend Frosty, uh, Stephen Whitechurch from Collider, was the, the moderator. Uh-huh. And it was all thanks to him that went down in the first place. So shout out to him. Uh, also, uh, I, think, I think there's a lot of reason why people thought that could be the case. But if I were – look, if I were in their shoes, right – I would go like, we've been preserving Endgame for a long, long, long time. There have been a few leaked set photos from the New York time travel bit that were uh, almost impossible to conceal because you're on set in an outdoor location. Things are going to get out. And as I, I get why that was happening, but maybe you saw a version that was condensed because when I was there, it was about a three hour conversation. I've uh-huh. never been to a conversation that long. And majority of the audience was very respectful, was very, very respectful about that idea. Um, And honestly, from my explanation and my uh, recall of the event, maybe I think they only blew it four times because the audience was so uh, respectful of that. And I and I totally get it. I mean, if I were in their shoes, I wouldn't want to ruin anything by saying anything. Sure. The. I mean, the fact that they came out and said Endgame was not the title and it ended up being was the fact that they wanted to really conceal what the movie was about. So I totally get where they were coming from. They came over to talk about Infinity War. And and they even said prior to the Q&A starting, guys, we're going to blow this, but let's tell you guys something. You're going to see something really soon. And lo and behold, something did come out. And they told me the same thing when we were privately chatting. So... They they promised something would come out soon. They said, guys, please stop asking. We know yeah. what you, some of you came here for. They they actually trolled. They said, we know why some of you are here. Like, right. we know. Like, of course. We're not, Dude, at that we're not point, <laughs> and it was so close to the anniversary yeah. of the release. I mean, it was like the next day was the anniversary of the release. Everybody thought that was going to happen. All right. Well, that, that, that gives me a little bit of peace of mind that they said that ahead of time. It but what just, ended up being was such an incredible conversation because I've never been to a Q&A that had an audience ask questions for two hours. Yeah, that and seems pretty they long. they were able yeah. to answer things that they would never answer in a junket interview. Right. It, they were fanboying out with everybody. That's like, cool. My friend Mike went with me. I invited Mike to go with me because of all the incredible industry stuff he's hooked me up with and vice versa. He asked the question, but if you remember that question they got asked about Beta Ray Bill – that was him. Right. Like Mike oh, is the cool. one that asked him the question about yeah. it. So that that blew up the internet and got people talking about it. So it was pretty incredible to hear answers that they love to give. And I was so happy. I was ap- uh, able to ask my IMAX Infinity War aspect ratio Blu-ray question to yeah. them. So it was finally finally resolved for everybody. Nice. Yeah, that was cool. Well, yeah, Vaughn, man, it's it's been awesome talking to you. And there's been some really great insight into this. Um, but I think we're going to have to wrap it up here and kind of kind of move on to um, the end of this. But, man, again, thank you so much for doing this. This has been awesome. Yeah, really yeah no worries. Taking out the time to chat with us and um, help further the the IMAX yeah yeah really people understanding it more and talking about it and um, why 
those choices need to be made and even just your experiences and, and uh, sharing that with, with us and with everybody listening. We really appreciate that. Yeah. So yeah, where can, uh, where can yes. everybody find you online? Well, uh, the best place uh, to find me online is on Twitter and also Instagram at I'm a film editor. You can see all the projects we're doing and a lot of the connections that I've made and all that. And I think that's how I want to end the conversation, guys, is by telling your audience, like a lot of the help and guidance I have gotten from people like Patty Jenkins and, you know, uh, Lauren Balf and Mark Sanger is by meeting them in person. If you have an event that you know that they're going to like people like that will attend. Don't be shy to go up afterwards and try to talk to them because a lot of the connections I've made and acquaintances that I had never thought in a million years I'd make is due to going up and actually introducing yourself. And lo and behold, if they find out that you have the passion for this and if you want to do it, they'll see that. And if you don't come across too arrogant, they will try to connect with you and to take yeah, their cool. time uh, time out of their busy time to connect with me especially someone like patty jenkins was just a huge honor and i think a lot of a lot of your listeners could do that too just try to find a place that somebody like that will be at i know it's harder for some other people but if you're able to do that by all means connectivity is the biggest thing in this industry so i think it's very important and i think if you put your mind to it and actually really passionately talk about what you love about entertainment with those kind of people, uh, you'll make stuff happen, man. Awesome. Great words. Great advice. Thank you, Vaughn, for uh, chatting with us. We'll, uh, we'll catch you soon. All right. Well, Eric, we've been doing this podcast for almost a year now. Yeah. And something that we've never pushed for is subscribers. That's right. We just want to bring value. Yeah. But you know what also brings value? What? More episodes. Sure. So please hit that subscribe button on whatever platform yep. you're listening on, whether it's Apple Podcasts, Spotify, uh, Google Play, or Anchor. Hit that subscribe button. And uh, if you'd like to support the podcast, you can go over to anchor.fm slash the easy podcast and, you know, throw, throw some money our way. Yeah. For less than a cup of coffee, you know. I don't actually know if that's true. No. But, yeah, they have like a subscription thing. Anyway, check it out. Anchor.fm. Yeah, I mean, you can, you can support it for less than – or you can support it for a dollar a month. I mean – yeah. That would be awesome. That would help us to continue to bring it these would. amazing podcasts to you. And if you guys have liked the interviews we've had, please uh, you know, write us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. I don't know if Spotify has reviews, actually, but Apple Podcasts definitely does. So um, try and write us a review. Just a quick one. Even if you didn't mm-hmm. like it, just, just write us a review. I just want to know what people think. Yeah. It's great. It's fun. We have a lot of fun doing it. And, uh, and it'll help us make it better. It's true. I mean, we want to make it better. We want to bring value. We want to, you know, there's that V word again. Keep saying value. Yeah. Because you know, that's what people pay for. And it's important. Yeah. So hit that subscribe button guys and support the podcast if you can. And we'll keep bringing you awesome interviews. Eric, where can they find us online though? They can find us online at anchor.fm slash the easy podcast or any of their favorite streaming platforms. We're also on Instagram and Twitter at the easy podcast. And uh, we're going to have some content coming up on YouTube. So search at the easy podcast show on YouTube soon. And you can send us an email at the easy podcast show at gmail.com. He can never say it normal. Cause it doesn't come out normal. It's fun. Yeah. It'll be fun. Thanks guys.